I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Happy anniversary, dear. Yeah, happy year, Moki. <laughs> I meant the show anniversary. Oh, yeah. But also, yes, we've had our we adopted our dog a year ago today. Yes, from when we're recording, not when this is going up. That is true. But it's also two years or, or the, the closest day to it. Of history hunters. It is. So what have you got to celebrate this? these two illustrious occasions? Well, if uh, you, you listened to our last episode, the prompt was to give us a suggestion for this episode. And if you were one of the first like five people, mm-hmm. I would pick one of your topics. And who is the lucky winner? The lucky winner is Kieran. Oh, congratulations, Kieran. Uh, Kieran suggested uh, talking about the women's building uh, at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Which we have not talked about as a whole yet. It's come up in many episodes. Yeah, yeah. And I I feel like this is one we're going to get. We're still not talking about it as a whole today. We're going to get this one piece by piece because there's a whole lot about this fair, isn't there? there? There is, there is. Uh, and now, Kieran suggested this episode concept uh, because they were learning about Pearl Hart, who apparently came to the fair and was inspired by it because mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of like feminist uh, things, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently led to her leaving her husband, and she went and was an outlaw in the West and stuff. So everything they're saying about feminism on YouTube is true. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> go be an outlaw. <laughs> Yeah, in the wild, wild west. You're gonna leave your husband, and you're gonna go hold up stagecoaches. Well, he was abusive, so <laughs> like he, you know. And that's why Star Wars should just be about Kylo Ren and none of the other characters. The end. Th- this is the episode I picked. Mm-hmm. Though there were some other good ones, there were some other ones that were quite. It was quite hard to choose from, but I decided to go with this one for now. As said, Chicago's World's Fair of 1893. Heard of it. Also known as the World's Columbian Exposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this sounds familiar, we talked about this in the H.H. H. Holmes episode, because he murdered a lot of people during this. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Who knows? That's what we learned in that episode. Who knows? But the, this fair was uh, celebrating the 400th anniversary of... Christopher Columbus coming here. Eh, 401st, but uh, who cares? Specifically, though, the women's building. Mm-hmm. In the, the planning stages of the fair, there's the idea of the women's building uh, being a place you know, to exhibit various women-centric things. Mm-hmm. This was very controversial. Ooh. Because there was like, a group of women who was like, yeah, we need our own building where we can exhibit, you know... Things that are considered, like, women industries. So lots of, like, handmade things and um, domestic things and all across the board. The Etsy Pavilion. Basically. Another group was like, no, we should not be segregating women's activities in exhibits from mm-hmm. the general, like, male exhibits. That's, like, completely going against everything we've been fighting for. Art is art, and craft is craft, and... Yes. Separate is inherently unequal. Yes. Ah, okay. So, yeah, we had this group that was focusing on women's social usefulness, basically. (laughs) So, like, charitable events, welfare, and educational efforts. Uh, They were often the wives of 
wealthy people. Mm-hmm. The the busybody club. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you also had another group that was all about you know votes for women and equality, mm-hmm. and they were often more like practicing professionals, people that were concerned with you know being on the same plane in the same marketplace as men. Yeah. Say artists or working women, academics, mm-hmm. all that. So there was a bit of going back and forth about, no, we should do this. We shouldn't do this. Yes, we should. No, we shouldn't. And who was on <laughs> what side of it? Yeah, yeah. There was a board of lady managers uh, that... I would hate to have to manage all these ladies. Yeah. This poor... I can understand why it takes an entire board to do it. Fair people created the board of lady managers, mm-hmm. and then there was a lady in charge of the board, but they overseen... <laughs> the, the lady manager's yes, manager? yes. Yes. Uh, I believe she was the president. Ah, the president of of femininity. In charge of overseeing this building coming together. Mm -hmm. Um, How it would be decorated, what would be displayed there, who would be involved with it, all that. Should we paint it pink? No, don't paint it pink. (laughs) Now, originally, they took a stance that they didn't want to deprive the general uh, exhibits of women's work. Or from, like, women, you know, competing in general juried awards. Uh-huh. They're kind of like, oh, we, we can do that, too. And they, they were kind of like, well, I don't know if we should, like, make this the place that all the women's work is made. Or, right. like, displayed. But eventually, they were much more on the board of, well, anything that's so good uh, or such, like, an extreme excellence we should, like, put here. Because... Uh, you know, we as a sex should be proud of it, and we should show it off, and like, look mm-hmm. what we did. The the women's pavilion should have all the best women things. Yeah. So don't put them in the the arts building, the electricity building. Yeah. Put them in the women's building. Yes. Yeah. Now, as I said, very controversial thing. Uh, a lot of uh, female artists and some critics were like, "No, all these women have been fighting to get their work shown against." You know, men mm-hmm. don't do this, but it happens. <laughs> so yes, this this building would have uh, exhibits of fine arts, crafts, uh, industrial projects, or industrial products, mm-hmm. regional and like ethnic uh, cultural pieces. Be a lot of stuff here, and we'll talk a bit about some of it oh, later. Okay, oh, we'll I talk will... a bit about it. I will hold my tongue as I was about to ask for uh, uh, examples. Okay, well, we'll get to some of it. Now, one thing the building did as, I guess, a whole mm-hmm. is... It's, Keep the rain off the people. Yes, it did have a roof. Good, good. But it stressed women's achievements and not so much things about political or economic issues. Mm-hmm. It's like, look at all these cool things we did, but not like... The focus on, like, these are the things we could be doing or we need to do. Or are you aware of these situations happening and how do we improve? Look at this really cool painting that a lady made. Yes. When it comes to their exhibit, Mm -hmm. that's very much what it was. You don't necessarily have to derive any greater meaning if you don't want to. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Though there will be an event that we'll talk about that took place during this that did a little bit of the opposite, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not quite as much. So it's unfortunate Though that it did not do more of that. Just mm-hmm. gonna say that. Uh, now, at the same time, the there was a lot of sex discrimination happening at the fair. Mm-hmm. So, if you have had sex, you're not allowed in. So no one came. A lot of priests, except children. Yeah, yeah, 
there was still, you know, women's work that was in the general exhibits. Mm-hmm. Not as much as it would have been if the women's building, you know, didn't exist. But there's still and some. Hadn't sucked it all up, yeah. centralized it. Often it was not properly credited to the woman that made it. And it was often the first thing to be removed when there was overcrowding issues. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. needed, like, to display more things. Be like, oh, just take out that lady's thing. Whatever. Right. So a lot of people who did initially oppose the building would later state their support for it. The world was, like, still so unenlightened that it needed it. Right. Needed to see what women were capable of. The the necessary evil of a segregated women's building. Yeah. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about some of these people involved. I love people. Yeah. So uh first first we're gonna talk about Bertha Palmer. People don't name their kids Bertha, Bertha. enough these days. Have you well, ever met somebody named Bertha in your life? No, I haven't even met an old lady named Bertha. Cause not really a great name. If you are listening and I'm you're I'm sorry like, if that's your name, but... If you're listening and you want your child to have a name that nobody else in their kindergarten is going to have... Bertha. Bertha. Yeah. Go for it. Bring it back. Yeah. Yes. So, Bertha Palmer was uh, the wife of a Chicago millionaire named Potter Palmer. Mm-hmm. Don't name your kid that. I got nothing. <laughs> Nothing good to say about uh, Potter. Do you, do you recognize his name? Uh, there's the Palmer House Hilton Hotel. There's also the Palmer House Ice Cream, which is one of the layers in a rainbow cone. I know that. Which is named after her. Her middle name was Rainbow Cone? No, but like the Palmer House Ice Cream is oh, named, okay. like was named for her in the hotel. And the hotel is what her and her husband owned. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, she was an early member of the Chicago Women's Club and worked on a lot of social problems. Uh, she was a big supporter of kindergartens, especially until kindergarten was incorporated into the school system in Chicago. Congratulations, you did it. Now you don't have a thing anymore. There were other things. There are other things. Uh, now, she was selected for the highest position for a f- woman at the fair, and that was the president of the Board of Lady Managers. Queen of all she surveys. (laughs) Now, it was more of like, in a lot of ways, like almost an honorary title, but she had a lot of stuff to do. (laughs) (laughs) She had a lot of honorary business. A a lot of actually overseeing of things. Cutting a lot of ribbons. And maybe even more than she actually needed to do. (laughs) So the board chose Sophia Hayden to design the women's building. Uh, Sophia was born in 1868 in uh, Santiago, Chile, uh, to a Chilean mother and an American father. And she moved to America when she was six uh, and lived outside of Boston with her grandparents and went to school in the United States. Uh, And she got interested in architecture in high school. Now, she attended MIT and was the first female graduate of the four-year architectural program there in uh, 1890. Congratulations. And uh, Oh, so she was just out of school then when she was designing this building. She was 21. Building. Oh my goodness. It was her first and last <laughs> architectural like job officially. All right. Okay. Um so right out of school she worked as a mechanic, yeah, mechanical drawing teacher at a local high school because it was really hard for a woman to find work as an architect. You know those delicate constitutions, they can't handle 
drawing pictures of buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at 21, she designed this building. Now, to do the design of the building, it was actually a design competition. Mm-hmm. She entered uh, because her friends were like, you should do this. And she was like, oh, okay, fine. I don't think I'll win, but sure. <laughs> you gotta think you've got a shot, right? If you're the only woman alive who's graduated the four-year architecture program at MIT. Yeah. Like, where are your peers? <laughs> You're the you're peerless. Well, Come on. There were, you know, twelve other people who entered still. Yeah, but those eleven did not have the training those, or the credentials. Swells. Okay. She was one of thirteen. Okay. But yeah, she won. Okay. She won. I'm- uh she got a thousand dollars for the design, which is like, oh, that sounds like a lot for the time. But men were getting like ten thousand dollars for doing the same amount of work. Mm-hmm. So Okay, cool. You cool, know. fine, yeah. But yeah, so this was her her first like big thing. One other thing that she would design would be a memorial for the women's clubs in the U.S. Uh, the following like year, like right after the fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was never built. She did her part, you know. It's it's everybody else that didn't didn't uh, you know carry the ball across the goal line. Yeah, yeah. Well, the design was based on her thesis project, which was uh, Renaissance. Museum of Fine Arts. Um, and it was based off the idea of a, a two-story building um, that had pavilions in the center and on the ends and lots of arches and column terraces, etc., etc., etc. Very, like, big, fancy building. I mean, the the, the fair was neoclassical after yes. all, so it, it fits right in. Fits right in. During construction, her design was changed a lot uh, <laughs> by the construction committee, which was spearheaded by Bertha Palmer. So she wasn't very happy about that. She definitely no. fought a lot of that. She also really did not want to take Palmer's advice to accept donations from these rich women of various like architectural odds and ends to like decorate the building. She didn't want to turn it into a collage? Yeah. Her... her- Lovely neoclassical building with its arches and columns. Yeah. Didn't want to turn it into a child's craft project. Yeah. She was uh, really, really against all of these things. Well, how snooty can you get? Come on, live a little. And a lot of the changes were coming very like quickly and like, okay, this, and we need to redesign this, and we need to do this. And she was not happy. Um, Palmer was not happy with her, and eventually <laughs> she was fired. Some people, like, will say that she, you know, threw a fit. Mm-hmm. She couldn't handle it. No, she was just standing up for her work. Right. Um. Also, a lot of, like, critics used it against her as, like, well, this is why females shouldn't be in construction. <laughs> um, but a lot of uh, fellow architects supported her design and her standing her ground. Mm-hmm. And a lot good. of her fellow architects, even at the fair... Seemed like way more of a prima donna than she did. Yes, yes. <laughs> Olmsted, my goodness. And, uh, you know, her building did receive an award for uh, its style and artistic taste and the elegance of the interior and stuff. So, mm-hmm. like, she did good work. Just people were dumb. <laughs> Too bad about all the gaudy license plates that were hanging like it's a Bennigan's <laughs> in there. Well, and so Hayden did not design anything else. She didn't work as an architect again. Uh, she did marry in 1900. 
to a portrait painter, an interior designer, uh, who had a daughter. Uh, they had no children themselves, and he died a few years later, and she died in 1953 from pneumonia after a stroke. She's out of the picture of this project. Um, <laughs> she made the picture of this project. She did. Palmer hired Candace Wheeler uh, to supervise the interior decoration after Hayden was kicked out. Candace Wheeler is often uh, credited as the mother of interior design. Uh, she was one of the first American women interior and textile designers. That's got to be one heck of a rough delivery. Yeah. Oof. Because the mother thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, she's giving birth to furniture, huh? That's what I said. Yep, okay. Uh, so she um, founded the Society of Decorative Arts in New York in 1877, um, which is kind of a cool thing. It um, was meant to help women support themselves through like handicraft things, like needlework and sewing and decorative arts, mm -hmm. so they could ideally, you know, make a living off of it. Uh, a big focus was on women who were left without an income after the Civil War um, because, you know, their husbands died or, fam you know, families died. The following year, uh, they started. she started the New York Exchange for Women's Work, where women could sell any product they made. So this included, like, artistic things and handicraft things and also, like, baked goods and household items. Much broader range that didn't require like, an artistic skill, though it could work, too. And what they did was they set up consignment shops, basically, inside wealthy women's houses. Mm -hmm. um, and people would come and buy stuff, and then they would pay commission back out to these people. And the first year, they paid out uh, $14,000 in commissions. So she really did invent Etsy. Yeah. Yeah. She okay. did. She created Etsy of the, you know, 1870s. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was also co-founder of an interior decorating firm with Lewis Comfort Tiffany of uh, Tiffany Glass. This only lasted a few years before they went in, like, different directions and stuff. Um, but she was 66 when she was asked to serve as interior decorator for the building. She would also organize the state of New York's applied arts exhibit at the fair as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this building she has to decorate. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, like... 200 by 400 feet. That's a lot of feet. It's a lot of feet. Multiple parlors that were decorated and furnished by women's organizations of different states. This room was done by Connecticut. Yay! Yeah. And stuff like that. Yeah. There were also many exhibits throughout the building. There was art all over on loan for this building. Mm -hmm. um, various statues and whatnot displayed. There was also an assembly room for uh, talks. Um, there was a loaned collection of relics of Queen Isabella and apparently very priceless laces of Queen Margarita. I love her pizza. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, apparently they never left Italy before, so this was like the time to see this in lace. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the women's building was one of the most popular attractions. It did have seating, which was pretty cool for people back then. That's like There was like not a lot of seating at the fair. Always helpful. But it had a lot of really cool stuff you could see. One thing that it had was a library of over 8,000 volumes of writing by women and collected by women. It was the first of its kind. Mm. Something that some people say, like, nothing has basically compared to this mm -hmm. um, for a very long time. And it also 
it might have inspired a lot of people to um, help build libraries in their communities. Right, yeah. But yeah, you could go and you could read. <laughs> you could just go and sit in this library and read. These weren't just like, look at all these books here just to look at. Like, you could actually pick one up and, like, sit down and just read for the day. I paid my nickel. I'm going to read a book. (laughs) Well, I think it's one thing when you talk about, like, World's Fair, you think of it as being, like, someone going to, like, Disney World. Like, you're going to go see all the attractions and you're going to go, 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 go. I'm going to see what new food they've invented. They're (laughs) shredding wheat these days, Ma. And and a lot of times, like, that can be it. But these fairs also lasted for so long. If you Mm -hmm. were local... And you could afford, like, the pass that you could buy. Yeah, you're just going to go to the library for a while. (laughs) Why not? Now, the library had a very detailed painted ceiling uh, that was done by Dora Wheeler Keith. Her mother was the interior decorator that we were just talking about. I wonder how she got the job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, this is actually uh, her, like, first major public project Mm -hmm. uh dora was an artist like she she had a career but most of her work was used for card designs or as an illustrator um she did they design a lot of cars in the 1890s cards cards Cards. okay yeah like greeting cards okay um she would she would do a lot of like print work design okay okay and she also did a series of portraits um for a lot of literary um including mark Twain and uh, Walt Whitman. This mural is like, you know, huge. It's a ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very fancy. We'll include a link in the notes and stuff. A lot of this art stuff, there'll be links. And it's one of, well, I don't want to say one of the few things that survived because a lot of things were on, you know, loan to the fair. Like they went away, they survived, they went back home. Yeah, yeah. But things that were made specifically for the building, not a lot of it survives because, you know, and a couple of years later, it was torn down and the building was gone. Yeah, the, these buildings were made to be temporary. Yes. So her her piece was actually uh, bought by the New York State Commissioner and is installed in the Capitol, Capitol Building in Albany. Mm-hmm. But no one knows where it is right now. <laughs> How do you lose a ceiling? New York, get your act together. Where is my ceiling? I would like to see it. It survived. They knew where it went. Allegedly. And then it's, now it's gone. Now it's gone. There were also two uh, large murals that were commissioned uh, by Palmer in the building. Uh, Their themes were primitive woman and modern woman. I'm just going to go out on a a limb here and take a wild guess. That primitive woman painting probably really racist. Actually, no. Really? (laughs) No. I'm, you automatically want to think like I'm primitive shot. is like a racist like tribal thing or something. Yeah, I'm thinking like American Indians or or an African tribe. No, like, but as those groups would be represented by well-to-do wealthy white women in the 1890s, just <laughs> the the primitive one was actually like an outdoor scene by a lake with trees, and there were women and children. Like, gathering water, picking apples, or, like, enjoying, like, nature. That's something modern women can do, too. Like, yeah. there's nothing about society today that prevents you from enjoying the, the lake shore. I think the themes here are very, like, ex- extreme. <laughs> um, the paintings, if you just kind of look at what's happening, are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more so, I think, like, the, the style of the artist 
And then the titles that the modern woman painting got mm-hmm. from the artist. Um, so the primitive one was by uh, Mary Fairchild McMoney's Low. She was an American painter. Her mural was actually like the more popular of the two. Ooh. Um, Respect the classics. Now it's hard to like speak personally from like seeing them because the only like image I found of it is, you know, this black and white tiny thing that makes it very hard to see what's actually going on. <laughs> um, and to not really be able to like comment on the like artistic aspects. But I think hers is maybe a tad bit more like traditional. Mm-hmm. Where the other one, the modern one, um, the other one was by Mary Cassette. And Mary Ooh. Cassette, if you, I believe we talked about in our Impressionist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, episode, uh, she was an American painter and printmaker from Pennsylvania who lived a lot of time in France. Uh, she was one of the first women, one of the first women to have. Uh, a painting selected for the Paris Salon in 1868. Um, she actually lived in Chicago for a while. Mm-hmm. That was during the Great Chicago Fire, so she lost a lot of her work during that. Mm-hmm. And she was very outspoken about the salons in France, how women were often overlooked or dismissed to get in unless they knew someone. And she joined the Impressionists by the invitation of uh, Edgar Degas. Mm-hmm. So like, in case you didn't listen to the episode, <laughs> caught up. Now her mural was split into like three parts. A triptych, you yes. might say. Yes. And each one she titled. Uh, the centerpiece was called Young Women Plucking the Flu- Fruits of Knowledge or Science. Pretty modern title, I guess. It's a bit of a mouthful, really. <laughs> the left side was Young Girls Pursuing Fame. And the right was arts, music, and dancing. Women used to pluck the fruits of just, like, fruit, fruit. Mm -hmm. And now they're plucking the fruits of science. Uh, I think the the big uh, idea behind her piece was it was community of women pursuing these things Mm -hmm. um, apart from men. That was something she had, like, I guess stated at some point and then, like, kind of being interviewed later mm-hmm. on about these pieces and what she was going for. She, it might not even look that much more like modern compared to the <laughs> primitive one, but the idea is there. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the difference between captioning your photo of a couple at the royal wedding as George Clooney and wife or international uh, human rights lawyer and husband. Yes. 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 And as I said, hers was the least popular of the two. <laughs> um, and I think probably a lot of that has to do with her maybe impressionist style and the colors. And it was known for being like very bright. Mm-hmm. And I think I read something that said it was an assault on the eyes or something. <laughs> of course. Goodness. Um, they didn't survive. They were torn down with the building, unfortunately. <laughs> Neither of these two artists were the first choice. Ooh. Uh, the first choice was actually Elizabeth Jane Gardner. They wanted her to do these two murals. Now, when I say murals, these were like 12 by 54 inches. Pretty big. Then they were not painted like there. They had to be painted elsewhere to be brought in. Hence One why they're foot not... by four and a half feet. Yeah. Okay. So they were like murals that hung above like entranceways. Mm-hmm. So still like pretty large. <laughs> But, you know, when you're building a building with only, like, six months or whatever, Mm -hmm, you're going to have to outsource that art. (laughs) 
Now, Elizabeth, though, was like, mm, I don't think I have the time to do two of these. <laughs> um, she was an American academic, and she was the other first American woman to exhibit at the Paris Salon of 1868 with Mary Cassette. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the first woman to receive a gold medal at the 1872 Salon, uh, and she apparently had more work accepted than any other woman painter in history into salons. She's also known for donning male attire to attend uh, all-male drawing school. Women at the time weren't allowed to, like, do, like, nude model anatomy studies. Mm -hmm. And it was the only way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So she was their first choice, but she was like, "Mm, I don't got the time. So we're going to talk about a souvenir. I love those. Did you find one? No, I didn't find one. Do they have a lot of fridge magnets left over from the 1894 World's Fair? No. Okay. We're going to talk about, you know, a commemorative coin. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that's what you get in the time period. Uh, so, Bertha. Mm-hmm. Good, good buddy Bertha. We're on a first name basis with Bertha and <laughs> yeah. I. Yeah. Yeah. I she... really enjoy her ice cream. She enjoys my my dry wit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she approached uh, Congress to to get the mint to produce a new commemorative coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would lead to the Isabella Quarter. The Isabella Quarter sounds like a neighborhood in uh, uh, some southern city that's known for its parties and homelessness. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's not. Okay. But um, it was a commemorative coin mm-hmm. with a... You know, Spanish Queen Isabella the first face and stuff on it. Uh, you know, to commemorate Columbus's voyage and the fair and all those things we're celebrating. It was made. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be designed by a woman. But, you know, we, we can't let our, our women in charge of the money. Well, they, tr- they tried for a little while. <laughs> uh, Caroline Petal was hired. Though the director of the Bureau of the Mint wanted them, it's like, yeah, okay, the women's managers can be like, get approval on the design, but can't we just keep this like in-house with our own designers? Mm-hmm. And Bertha's like, no, she's doing it. Bertha never really took no for an answer no, on she anything. she did not. Uh, so it's her way or the highway. So Carolina did design the coin, uh, but she also ended up leaving the project. Um, because there was a lot of disagreements with mint officials on what the design should be. And then like, well, this is okay, but this side's not. Why don't you just let us, you know, redo it and adjust it. And like lots of going back and forth about what should be what. And she was like, you know what? No, I'm done. I'm not going to be responsible for half of a project that I'm supposed to do the whole thing of. Mm -hmm. Bye. So in the end, it was designed by the Bureau of the Mint's chief engraver, Charles E. Barber. I'm going to guess Charles was not a woman. Nope. No, okay. Uh, now, the coin did not sell very well. Because who buys coins? You just get coins oh, when you're trying to buy something else. A lot else. of people did back then. It was like the thing to do. I don't but believe But here's you. the problem. The coin cost a dollar. You said it's a quarter. Yes, it's a quarter coin. I think I found the, <laughs> the issue. Well, here's the main thing. A dollar is also what the Colombian half dollar commemorative coin Come costs. On. So a lot of people were like, wait, that one's more. I want that one. But either way, you're losing money. 
You're losing money. Well, I mean, the the Isabella coin's now worth like up to six thousand dollars. Well, egg on my face. <laughs> but that's mostly because half of them like had to be returned to the mint to be melted down because they're <laughs> still just money. They don't have to do that. You can just have money. Counterfeit coins are like weird. <sighs> and then a lot more were purchased uh, at face value by lady managers. That is some garbage. <laughs> Everybody else, all these rubes, spend a dollar to get a quarter. But we, the wealthy society ladies of Chicago, get it? No. I, no. I assume it was like when they were like packaging up to send them back you to the are, mint, they were like, can I just have one? I okay, think here's you a quarter. Are wildly mistaken. I, I hope. think they had first know. call, they had first dibs. I don't know. So we're going to talk about some music. Oh. We're kind of covering all the things, all the basics here. All the things. Uh, so uh, American composer Amy Cheney Beach uh, was commissioned to compose a choral work uh, for the opening of the building. Mm-hmm. It was called the Festival Jubilate Opus 17, which I really tried very hard to find a recording of this. Mm-hmm. I could not. I did find some sheet music, so I'll link that before below in case you, like, play piano and you want to know what it sounds like. <laughs> could not find a YouTube video of it. The the best opus is definitely number 14, though, so. Yeah. After that, she just ran out of steam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, she she did write a lot. <laughs> I did find a... Might have actually been 14. <laughs> I found one that was, like, a different number. <laughs> But she was the first successful American female composer of large-scale music. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also the first American composer to succeed without European training. So there, yeah. <laughs> what do we care about people from Europe at this exhibition to honor Columbus? <laughs> and Queen Isabella specifically in this one building. <laughs> So uh, she was actually a child prodigy. Apparently, she could sing dozens of songs within a first, like her first few years of life. So and she could every kid. Frere well, like, Jacques doesn't make you a prodigy. I mean, if you can sing at like one, I guess that's normally you can't really talk that much at one. Uh, she could also read by age three, and she was composing waltzes at age four. All right, you got me there. Okay, okay. I was not. I was not doing that. Uh, apparently, her mother was kind of a jerk, though. Because she wouldn't let uh, Amy play the piano, like, when she wanted. <laughs> uh, because she thought giving into her wishes would uh, damage her parental authority. Mm-hmm. You gotta set firm boundaries. Yeah. Um, Around the piano. <laughs> like, Amy's mom would play and other people would play. But I guess she just, like, bossed them around because she was not up to her standard mm-hmm. at, like, age five. She was <laughs> like, you play terrible this is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Her whole life, basically, is just a series of, like, people standing in her way <laughs> of, like, being able to learn stuff. And it was things where, like, you know, it was years before she had any, like, formal training, even though, like, she could already play. Mm-hmm. It Her family uh, didn't want to send her, like, to a music school. They're like, oh, no, like, this private teacher will be enough. It was a lot of, like... Not encouraging things. Mm -hmm. And this didn't uh, stop when she got married either at 18. She married a man that was 24 years older than her. So she married her uncle. Pretty much. 
Uh, her marriage was conditioned that she live according to his status and function as society matron and patron of the arts. She would not be allowed to teach piano, uh, and she must limit her public performances to two recitals a year, and the profits must go to charity and not to herself. Mm-hmm. And because of all this, led to her focusing on composing. Because you can do that in the privacy of your own home. Yes. Away from all these Bertha-style busybodies. Yes. Yeah. Now, in 1892, Hendel and Hayden Society Orchestra performed her Mass in E-flat major, which was the uh, first piece they had performed by a woman since they were founded in 1815. Mm-hmm. And then next came her uh, Gaelic Symphony, which premiered at the Boston Symphony Orchestra and was the first piece they did composed and published by an American woman. Uh, she went on to write many uh, other symphonies and choral and chamber work and over like 150 different songs, mm-hmm. um, which are really her most po- what she was most popular for. Um, she didn't write the words for a lot of them. Usually it was like poems or other things put in for words, but still a lot of composing going on. Mm-hmm. She also had an interest in folk music and wrote about 30 songs inspired by various different types of folk music. Her husband died, and then shortly after, her mother died. And that's when she started performing concerts again. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to dedicate this piece to my husband. I'm glad you're dead. Let's go. Uh, She also wrote for uh, newspapers and journals giving a lot of advice to young composers, specifically often female composers, and how to mm-hmm. encouraging them and like what they should try to do. Step one, don't get married. If failing <laughs> that, step two, arsenic. You'd be surprised where you could find it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems she was actually commissioned for several other events kind of like this. Um, she also did the 1898 opening ceremonies for the Trans-Mississippi Exposition in Nebraska. And the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition to celebrate the Panama Canal. (laughs) Uh, Some of those you can find on YouTube, just not like this one. (laughs) But I think that's pretty cool. She's Mm -hmm. she's pretty cool. Um, And now we're going to talk about uh, the event that took place during this time that was a bit more social focused. Yeah, let's get to the good stuff. Um. So during the fair uh, in May of 1893, so like towards the beginning, uh, the World's Congress of Representative Women was held. It's a week-long convention uh, for voicing of women's concerns. Uh, 81 meetings took place. Um, Speeches were made by 500 women from 27 countries, um, and 150,000 people attended this. Wow, that's a lot of women. A lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. The most popular sessions were actually devoted to clothing and dress reform. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it affects your everyday life. What, what does voting rights mean? One day a year? You're wearing clothes all of the days. <laughs> every day. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a, a big push, you know, less restrictive clothing, shorter skirt. You know, this is the time when, like, if you showed your ankles, you could be, like, arrested. Right, yeah. I'm not being frivolous. Like, this is important. (laughs) It is very important. If you can't be liberated in your own outfit, how can you be liberated in society? Yeah. Um, Now, the topics that were covered were 
all across the board. There was a lot of things focused actually on domestic aspects. Um, there was education, some cultural things, a lot of mixed message things. I in don't some think ways. you can get a group of 500 people to agree on anything, let alone everything. We're going to talk about some of the very backwards ideas in a minute. Sure, sure. One thing that I did find interesting, um, so there's actually a print, like a book that was printed um, that has actually been digitalized mm -hmm. um, that we'll link that has um, a lot of the speeches from this event. Not all of them, but a lot. And a lot of them have pictures of who actually was speaking. Okay. Which is pretty cool. It's like the program that they did and someone put it online. I mean, it's definitely a lot of like white women. Mm -hmm. But there are some um, people of different backgrounds, definitely from other countries, representing their countries, talking about where they're from. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty cool yeah. for the time period. There's definitely some like white women, though, that went to other countries and were talking about like, yeah, these people weren't cannibals. I was amazed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, couldn't you have just let one of them come to talk? <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah. There were speeches on the right to vote, uh, a lot of stuff looking at... You know, are we women full citizens? Mm -hmm. You know, are we, you know, full people? Talking about, like, that struggle of the political aspect. Now, a big focus was also on um, education. Now, there were some a lot of speeches that were made about kindergarten and its importance. Mm -hmm. This was the time when, like, there, there was a focus on early education in a way that there wasn't before. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of various stances on it. Uh, a lot, though, in support and, like, we need this and this is good for children and, you know, we can start educating them earlier. It also helps, like, the mothers because yeah. they have, you know, more free time. They don't have to worry. All that. There's also some very backwards ideas of education. <laughs> and the first one I'd like to talk about is The Education of Indian Girls in the West by Mary C. Todd. Uh, she basically goes on about how these... Native American girls have sluggish minds due to their unclean and demoralizing ties to their home, if you can even call it that, because they live in tents. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I'm going to guess that she uh, supported uh, basically the, the cultural genocide, the elimination of Native culture. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Placing these children with white families. So, so uh, she goes on about... Yeah, like how uh, if the you know education field and the government can get a hold of these young girls mm -hmm. and keep them in the system, they can grow up to be civilized. And then there's very little danger of when they're done with school that they'll return to their savage ways. Quote there, like yeah. Well, I have a, I have a quote here if you would like sure. to read it. But surrounded by whites and encouraged and taught by their teachers and native preachers, surely a bright future is before these poor Indian girls. Surely the dormant mind will awaken and the sluggish energies quicken when she sees around her the homes of intelligent white women. The education of the Indian girl means the uplifting of the tribes in every way, and yet it means also and soon the losing of the races of red men from off the face of the earth pause for applause i guess is that what you're that hoping is the for end. that is the end Mary of her speech she ends on that oh lordy like there's there's no euphemisms there no no wow yeah 
It was very, like, I did not read every single, like, speech of, because there were a bajillion. 500. Uh. Um, but just, like, looking through and seeing, like, you'd find ones that were very, like, yeah, this is good. And there was, like, one I was reading that was, like, kind of uh, iffy. It was going back and forth, but it was about, like, uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. But it was talking at, like, talking about how basically Muhammad doesn't get, like, enough cred. Yeah. He needs more credit from all of us. And it was like, wow, that's very, like, surprising, I guess, for the time period and the Christian-focused and da 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 Yeah, yeah. And, like, there'd be things that were, like, definitely more forward-thinking. And then there's this. But, like, that was official sanctioned U.S. policy for quite a long time, and we cannot move on without saying so. Also, Canada, I know you're you're in it with us, too. Uh I'm not trying to say, like, Kieran, you're wrong about feminism and stuff. So- like, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. There's definitely a lot of that stuff. But there's also so much stuff here where I'm like, I wouldn't, I would not include, like, half of this in being, like, uplifting, mm-hmm. encouraging. I mean, when, when people even today complain about white bourgeois feminism. Yeah. This is what they're talking about. This yeah. is the, the roots of it. It's been there from the beginning. Yeah. And some people say it was the beginning, but like, hey, Ida B. Wells, all right, you shut your mouth. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, well, yes, it is important that, you know, women be free to wear what clothes they want or free for this or the ability for their child to have an education. But then there also comes a point where you're becoming the busiest of bodies and you need to stay out of it. Yeah. And no, you're not always right. And maybe we shouldn't kidnap children from their homes. What what are you doing? And it's just like I think this one was just it was just the biggest like Oh <laughs> And I I'm aware like I know of it. Like I've I've read in a lot about that terrible history. Mm-hmm. Um, that unfortunately lasted way, way, way too long. And there's still a lot of issues in yes. what is accessible to Native Americans mm-hmm. because of where reservations are, where they live, etc. It's very important to be aware of, everyone. <laughs> um, and the, the, the next one I have is also, like, infuriating. And it's another example of what was government-focused education Mm -hmm. in a way that like is completely backwards and that is um this one this speech was called the next step in the education of the deaf i okay when you're saying it's a bad one and it has the next step in the title i'm really afraid so that's a that's a flag next step oh uh so this one was by mary s garrett um, oh the popcorn lady who, who basically said that uh, deaf babies should be encouraged to understand speech from I got the start. It. I got an objection to that. They're deaf. Like- yeah. But no, no. If you just talk to them and you, like, make them look at your mouth while you're talking, they'll understand Has you. Has anyone explained the meaning of the word deaf to Mary S. Garrett? A deaf baby will automatically be able to start understanding your lips. And you shouldn't use any hand motions when trying to talk to them because you don't do that to a regular baby. And yes, they you learn do, speech. though. You totally do, though. Not according to her. And uh, as she says, if you, you know use hand motions, quote, just here begins the cruel system of training the deaf child 
or the the deaf differently from the hearing, and thus making them feel from the very onset of life that they are peculiarly unlike those around them. Which I'm like, you really missed what you're trying to say there. Yeah, it's because so, so you're the making their life harder. Deaf children will be better off with less accessibility because. Yeah. Then they'll just bootstrap themselves up into assimilation. Like, these are both very assimilationist arguments. Yeah. But that, that is what they have in common. And this is so, like, this is really the, the I guess, the start of the push and the focus through hi- history of deaf education of how, for so long, sign was banned. Mm-hmm. You were not allowed to sign if you went to a deaf school. It was all about speech. It was all about learning to vocalize and to lip read. Mm-hmm. I would say the next step in the education of the deaf is to make ASL uh, a recognized language, if not a requirement, an elective alongside like Spanish in every American middle school and high school. Yes, that is actually, um, I guess there's like a... a- a little bit of a campaign for that, actually. Well, if there's a if there's a petition, sign me up. That's um, that's all I'm going to say. For for those who aren't aware, like through uh, much of the 1800s, there were schools for the deaf popping up that focused on sign language, focused on creating language mm-hmm. within someone first in the accessible way, the easy way, and then like yeah, if you want to like work on lip reading, if you want to try to vocalize, like you can do those things. But we need to develop language first. Yeah. And that's what Sign does. And she's saying, like, oh, just cut it out. It'll just, be fine. No. You'll do great. Like, mm. And it's amazing how long that idea lasts through American history that what she's saying is it. Yeah. Just, the whole point of this is, like, the women's building, yes, had things that had things that were very inspiring that were like, oh yes, look at this amazing artwork and creations by women, and they definitely stand amongst men. Mm-hmm. Um, and 498 other speakers. Many oh, of them were probably... Let's say half and half. Half and half, okay. okay. I'm gonna say half of them were very, like, inspiring and feminist <laughs> and not racist and okay. <laughs> and then half were, like, you know, questionable, if not bad. It's the 1800s on history, honeys, darling. They're, yeah. they're just modern enough to be dangerous. Yeah. It's <laughs> So I think it's important to recognize that like cuz it's so easy to be like this is an amazing thing and it's so great and look at all these things. But there was still problems. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Um because that's history. There's always uh going to be the jerk that you got to <laughs> hope they learn they're wrong (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting look at the uh dawn of american feminism right Mm -hmm. like i mean it wasn't the beginning of any of these ideas but it was one of the biggest collections you know that we're talking about decades before suffrage yeah this nascent movement trying to find a voice and and seeing that there, there are so many interconnected struggles. Yeah, because uh, women are half the world. So there, there are poor women. There are deaf women. There yeah. are indigenous women. Like yeah. these uh, women's rights are human rights, and and it's a network that connects to everything. Yes, and I think it's um, interesting too when you look at like a lot of there's a lot of various like 
I guess, different groups of feminism, especially this, you had like your rich feminism, you had your working class feminism, mm-hmm. various issues they were working on. We talked about um, Margaret Sanger. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you you had a person like um, Candace Wheeler, who we were talking about, who was um, creating opportunities for women to make money. Yes. And, like, you get those people who do see, like, we need this. This is the thing we need. I have the ability to create this because I have a position of power or money or status or whatever where I can do it. And it's great. And then you get these other people who are, like, think they're so high and mighty, basically. <laughs> you, you've you got your, your birthers of the world. Yeah. Uh, who are more concerned with taking care of the other birthers of the world. Than other people's so, concerns. Well, and I, Bertha's such an interesting one because she definitely was involved in like various. I mean, she was an early member of um, women's associations here in Chicago that did work for kindergarten, for, mm-hmm. you know, especially mm-hmm. poorer populations to be able to have that access and to work for social issues in the city for women. But then, yes, she's also like edging these women of various fields like architect out of their position because she doesn't agree with what they're doing yeah like in a more sympathetic reading like maybe she's trying to hold together this coalition of of wealthy women too bad it's at the expense of the professional women that she has to work with yeah it's such a such an interesting Mm -hmm. thing i feel like there's like a whole book to be written about (laughs) that right there but yeah so that's a bit about the women's building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I felt like it was, uh, I don't want to say like more interesting, but I was drawn more to like the people involved. Right. Then there was this picture, there was this picture, there was this picture. Mm-hmm. A lot of times with the fair history, you don't, you don't hear so much about the people of all the different buildings involved. Mm-hmm. So I, I assume you learned some stuff. I learned some stuff. We, yeah. we, we did we, some we of that. We talked about some of that already. So Some of the stuff that would have come after that question we got to already. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, with that, we'll be back with some letters. Yay, letters. Welcome back, everybody. We've got some mail. Yeah. And some news and some announcements and all that business. We got a letter from Peter. Like you mentioned in the the main content portion, uh-huh. our prompt was uh, you were asking for listeners submitted suggestions mm-hmm. to, to pick how we start our third year. Yes. Uh, and so Peter provided a couple of those. He'd written in previously about Operation Ajax and the Dreyfus Affair, uh, wanted to, to remind us of those, and also see if we'd be interested in talking about Count Ungren, the Mad White Khan, who tried to overthrow the communist government in 1920s Russia with a resurrected Mongol horde. It didn't go well. No. I'll, I'll say he did not succeed. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. It's probably the zombies he had. Yeah. Resurrected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 I know that's not what you meant, but. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Uh, Flavo5 wrote in and thanked us for our surrealism episode. Uh, they enjoyed listening to it and have been interested in uh, surreal movies. 
mm-hmm. since they saw a racer head in middle school. <laughs> That's a formative experience, seeing a racer head in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. Also sent us a picture of their parents' dog, Lola, Aww. who's very old and snorty and gross Aww. and has a million toys, including Lola's favorite toy, which was the first one they got, which was a little yellow ducky and has been torn to shreds. And Lola just walks around with a little duck and waddles around the house snorting the whole time and then tries to hide it when they're like not looking. <laughs> like, Don't find my little ducky. Oh, Lola. I like Lola. Uh, and as for the prompt, th- this w- this one almost happened. <laughs> this one will happen someday, mm-hmm. I am sure. Uh, an episode on the Broadway musical. A- as an art form. Yes. Ah. I think this is the one you thought I was going to go with. I really did for a bit. I want more time with it. Okay. I feel like I didn't have enough time. <laughs> I would go crazy on this one. Well, thanks, Flava Five. Ian wrote in to pitch uh, an episode on cosmicism, uh, the literary philosophy, and its uh, uh, progenitor, of course, H.P. Lovecraft. And if we were to do that, it could end by by seeing how uh, that influence has spread and blossomed into all sorts of corners of the literary world and many other mediums that didn't even exist until Lovecraft died. He also says that Thin Mints are the best cookies. They're not really good. I like Ian's idea of crumbling them into ice cream. Ooh. That's a good... I mean, they're the best frozen anyway, so mm-hmm. you might as well just take a frozen Thin Mint and put it in your ice cream. Thanks, Ian. Uh, James sent us an email with a topic suggestion being the first major celebrity music craze, which was Listomania, the uh, widespread hysteria uh, that happened from Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. Uh, and his music, uh, the first of which I'm just imagining like 1841 bras being like swirled around and thrown at him. And that took time. Because you got to do the whole corset. Like, <laughs> do, 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 do. hold on, hold on. Don't leave yet. I know you're almost. Hold on. Oh, dang, he's gone. He's already <laughs> like three blocks down the street. Aw. Sad day. Thanks, James. <laughs> Kieran, uh, like we mentioned, wrote in suggesting an episode on the Women's Pavilion. Congratulations, you won! Of the 1893 World's Fair. Thanks for that. And in the show notes, we're going to have the article Kieran mentioned uh, that he wrote about Pearl Hart. You can hear more of that. A bit of fallout, I guess you call it. He also recommends to everybody, if you wanted to uh, role play as the Surrealists we mentioned, among others, uh, there's a fantastic campaign for the Trail of Cthulhu system called the Dreamhounds of Paris uh, by Robin D. Laws. And it's so good. Kieran, you're right. It's so good. That may have inspired the episode. Just going to say. Thanks for writing, Kieran. Joe uh, sent us a show suggestion, which was The Great Australian Emu War. It's got drama, death, comedy, famine, and bounty hunters hunting down giant birds. Wanted, dead or alive. It's like everything you want. Yeah. Everything. So thank you, Joe. Riv wrote in with a few uh, prompts to catch up on. Two favorite things from 2017. The first, participating in marches and rallies throughout the year with friends and family uh, and and experiencing what it's like to be out there in the streets, carrying your signs, shouting your slogans, just this magical bit of community 
you know, repurposing the, the surroundings around you with thousands of others who, who feel the same way and are there for the same reason. It's a really empowering uh, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. And the second related to that is becoming a lot closer to his cousin. Hey. Hey, Rich. Maybe Rich listens. Maybe. That'd be nice. Riv's favorite Girl Scout cookie is the Savannah Smiles cookie, which is, yes, that new lemon one. The results are in, dear. You gotta People give seem to like it. You gotta give the current lemon cookie a chance. Yeah. Riv's mom's favorite is the tagalong with Samoas as a strong second. Yeah. Sticking with the classics. Mom also listens to our show now. Hi, Riv's mom. <laughs> <laughs> And as for the current prompt, uh, Riv wanted to suggest the story of uh, some World War II history. The 1939 Britain, USSR, Romania, and Poland would-be pact, an uh, uh, alliance that didn't quite happen in response to the aggression of uh, Nazi Germany. And the USSR's sort of uh, flopping sides a couple times before uh, the invasion, and then things really went bad for for germany after that yeah yeah <laughs> thanks riv oh and thank you for the hedgehog picture adorable so cute jeff first off sent us a picture of phineas so thank you for the picture of phineas always appreciated uh and for current prompt show suggestion bonnie prince charlie um that sounds made up <laughs> uh apparently uh this guy was being uh commemorated uh, Jeff's first week living in the UK and was super surprised when he saw gunpowder being blasted in the city center. So thought it would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Mateus writes in with a, a quick letter, uh, uh, again, answering the prompt, uh, suggesting we talk about uh, California's mega floods. And I do kind of have some flood ideas. Mm -hmm. That might turn into something. We haven't done flooding, have we? No. No, we haven't done flooding. We also need, like, a giant sinkhole or something. I guess. So thanks, Mateus. And, and uh, that's that's all of them. That's all of today's letters. So if you'd like to send us an email, like one of these fine people, you can send that to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. You can say hi. You can send us animal pictures. You can answer a prompt. So, darling... Do you have a prompt? I would like to know everybody's favorite CIA operations. <laughs> Fringe. That was FBI. That was FBI. <laughs> was Alias? Was that was that at CIA? That was FBI. No, was they they were a, they were a completely separate <gasps> organization. I can't think of a CIA TV show thing that I could mention. Well, you'll have to stick with the reality then instead. Don't got one. Okay. So yes, you can send those along with any. Other show suggestions or questions or stories or corrections or anything else you, you think might be interesting to hear read right back to everybody, too. Podcast at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. At History Honeys. Because we love to keep in touch. We love to chat. I uh, hear from you. Thank you very much for those who engage with us. Mm -hmm. You can also follow our dog on Instagram. That is true. That's very true. <laughs> Happy anniversary, Moki. Happy birthday. It's her birthday! Because we don't know when she was born. So let's just say she's two. <laughs> she's two. 
We would also really appreciate it if you gave us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or wherever else you found us. Mm-hmm. You can also tell a friend. Uh, Word of mouth helps other people find us, just like those ratings and reviews. Very powerful tool, and we do appreciate it all so much. Mm-hmm. So, now it's time to get to that news I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. What's your news? Uh, again, I showed up on a few other places. I'm on a recent F-plus episode. But what I'd really like to talk about is that I'm maybe going to be a published tabletop game designer, and you can help make that happen. Ooh. Right now, there's a game that I deeply adore called Final Bid uh, Funding on Kickstarter. Again, link in the show notes. Uh-huh. And I am writing the first expansion to that game. It is a cinematic auction game. Not action, auction. Uh, it, it w- Does someone have to be the person like going... Nope. No? Oh, okay. Tell me why. <laughs> tell me, Tell me. make this game exciting to me. Tell me why. Tell me more. The, the central mechanic is about you uh, as a player bidding your character's resources and whoever gives up the most in a scene or gives up the most uh, significant things gets gets the narrative control for that scene uh, which has a lot of really interesting implications in, in how play uh, comes out and how you construct scenes and, and create narrative arcs and I could go on and on that's a about lot it. cooler than what my mind went to when you said auction because yeah. I was like oh we're just going to the auction block and we're all going to mm-hmm. pretend we're auctioneers no no I ins- <laughs> and bidders instead you pretend like your various roles in a western or in a dystopian okay. sci-fi or in a horror film a lot more variety there or in the one I'm writing a teen melodrama Ah, yes. Yeah, that's yes. that's my responsibility. Uh, all you Sex Archie listeners, I'm bringing that heat. In fact, it is called Glenbrook uh, as a play on Riverdale. Yeah. <laughs> Synonyms. Uh- <laughs> also a real location? Yes. In, Chicago, in the Chicago area? Oh, you mean my thing that's also got influence from John Hughes' films is named for a Chicago <laughs> suburb? You think my wordplay game isn't strong? <laughs> You're so deep. I'm okay. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. Like as you can tell, I'm real excited and invested in this project and I'd love for you to check it out. Please, please check out the the show notes and spread it around. Uh my stretch goal is a social one. As long as enough people share uh the tweets, share the uh campaign, you unlock mine. And it's at no extra cost to anybody. You don't have to pay to do it. You just got to click the little button. Just click the button. That's so easy. Mm -hmm. But also, you should get the game because it's a really good game. (laughs) That too. Yeah. That too. So, with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.